I want to thank our amazing sponsor today, the Academy Therapy Wisdom. If you're a therapist, counselor, social worker, or in any helping profession, this is for you because this is specifically designed to elevate your practice. The Academy Therapy Wisdom is more than just an educational platform. It's a vibrant community. They offer an expansive range of trauma training courses, workshops, and seminars led by some of the most esteemed experts in our field. We're talking about instructors like Janina Fisher, who brings a wealth of knowledge on trauma, Frank Anderson on trauma and spirituality, Deirdre Fay, who specializes in attachment theory, Darren Young, an expert in multicultural counseling, and Julian Taylor, who dives deep into neurobiology and memory reconsolidation. But what sets the Academy of Therapy Wisdom apart is its commitment to practical, real-world application. You're not just absorbing theories. You're learning from real-world scenarios and case studies that you can directly apply in your practice. Plus, they have a growing selection of self-care programs just for you. And because you're a valued listener to this podcast, the Academy of Therapy Wisdom is offering a free gift of two teaching dialogues between Dr. Frank Anderson and Dr. Janina Fisher. So go to therapywisdom.com slash trauma podcast. Don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Go to therapywisdom.com slash trauma podcast or click the link in the show notes to discover what the Academy of Therapy Wisdom has in store for you. The Center for Healing Trauma and Attachment, or CADA, founded by the visionary Doreen Hills, is dedicated to providing innovative and compassionate treatment for those seeking profound healing. CADA's mission is clear, to offer driven, passionate, and cutting-edge therapeutic approaches that not only heal trauma, but also address the needs of the soul. They believe that true healing goes beyond symptom management and is about restoring wholeness. So whether you're an individual seeking therapy, a provider, a therapist looking for training, or a member of the community in need of support, CADA offers quality and affordable trainings tailored to your unique needs. To learn more, visit chtainc.org. That's chtainc.org. All right, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson. My mission is to help trauma therapists be their incredible selves, to be human, to be real, not just a clinician. I'm a big believer in who we are is more important than what we know. And this requires cultivating authenticity, genuineness, and vulnerability, and that requires intention. You can learn more about my courses and workshops by going to thetraumatherapistproject.com. That's thetraumatherapistproject.com. Let's get started. Timothy, are you ready to do this? Let's go. All right, man. Here we go. So five, four, three, two, and one. All right, folks, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. I am very excited to have my guest today, Timothy Bailey. Tim, welcome. Thanks. It's nice to meet you, Guy. So Tim Bailey is an artist and band leader in Richmond, Virginia. He's a survivor of severe and prolonged childhood abuse resulting in lifelong post-traumatic mental illness. His acclaimed debut album, Timothy Bailey and the Humans, traces his narrative from despair and isolation to hope and connection. He's passionate about contributing to public understanding of early trauma's effects, as well as advocating for art as an indispensable tool for healing. Now, on your About page, I want to just share this if I can. You, you say, more than once, I found myself wandering around the streets of Washington, Washington, D.C. with my shirt 
buttoned wrong, unsure of who I was or where I was. Each time I found a piece of paper in my pocket with a phone number on it that I didn't recognize and called it. The number was for my therapist and she would tell me how to get home. The search for a path out of trauma led to the founding of your band, Timothy Bailey and the Humans. Tim, welcome. Thanks. Thanks very much. So before we get started here, uh, share with our listeners where you're from originally and where you are currently. Yeah, I grew up in the Hampton Roads region of Virginia um, near the coast and moved to Richmond, um, the state's capital, in the early 90s because the band that I was playing in at the time was here. And I've I've more or less been here ever since. I had a brief uh, foray in the Washington, D.C. area where I went to graduate school for a spell. Okay. So, well, let's get into this. How the hell did all this start? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think that there's just there's no way around the reality that it it began grimly. Uh, I was abused by my parents uh, beginning very early. So was my sister. We both left childhood with um, serious um, psychiatric conditions characterized by profound association. Um, And I mean, that is that is the beginning. That is also the hurdle that I have been attempting to overcome ever since. It has been a a long and arduous process. I am now 50 years old and have just released my debut album where um, many of my contemporaries, people I collaborated with in my early 20s were doing this kind of thing before they were 30. And um, my path has been different. I've mostly just been um, attempting to heal uh, through therapy and um, uh, other modes of um, uh, hospitalizations and the like. So I've had a difficult path and over the last several years have um, found enough stability to be able to get the work of my heart Congratulations on the album. Thanks very much. Thanks. So how did you, so what ages are we talking at here about here when this started? Yeah. um, I I mean, I was having some, um, some complex PTSD experiences before I was 10, but they were, you know, ignored. Uh, I I grew up in a a medical family. My father was a physician. Um, And, uh, Eventually, the problems during late high school became profound enough that ignoring them was no longer tenable. Uh, I got, you know, sort of um, cursory treatment around the advent of Prozac um, before going to college. I had my first complete breakdown. I was 17 and in music school outside of New York City. Um, so that's that's sort of where the the intermittent pattern of extreme instability mm-hmm. got going, and music was always um, connected to that. It was always a way out, um, and um, always played a role. So really, my problems were serious by seventeen. But you know, people people kind of um, fake it till they make it, or they or they rely on, on their stronger parts of themselves. And I was able to more or less make my way through life. It was a little rickety, but I was managing until I was around, I guess, 30. And I was was actually in a PhD program for counseling psychology outside of DC um, when I collapsed in a way that I was never able to, um, to really come back to a stable life until recently. 
let's get to that. But before sure. we do, what what was happening for you at seventeen around that time? How were how were how was this manifesting outwardly? Yeah, it's a lot a lot of classic dissociative stuff, feeling like I was watching my um, life on a movie, uh, frequently feeling like I was outside of myself, um, looking at parts of my body that were out of scale, uh, losing a little bit of time here and there. And a, a, so that that kind of eerie um, and profound sense of the self leaving itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so- and did you. Did you know what was going on? Like absolutely this? not. Okay, no. so there was no correlation. Like, oh my God, my I had experienced all this abuse. Some this is my absolutely not. I I I would have characterized my family as having been happy. Um, and you, if you as a as a clinician had scratched the surface, you would have not heard happiness. Uh, you would have heard um, terrible stories that were being mischaracterized as normal or as games. But I, my, my, I did my, I did not know in myself, um, what I had experienced. I didn't know how to characterize it properly. Were your friends aware of what was going on? Did you share with anybody? Did you? Um, yes and no. I think water seeks its own level. And I think that not all, but many of my friends at the time were in maybe not as severely abusive home lives, but that we were a we were a group of misfits who who didn't have a lot of love. At what point or was there a point when you wanted to seek some kind of help? Yeah, um, I had a. I came up to Richmond. I was just shy of twenty. I was playing in bands. That was going well, um, and I quit college to um, to do a job that I enjoyed. Um, and I had a very caring boss at the time, and it became clear to him that something was wrong. Um, and he knew a therapist who was very skilled and was very, very helpful to me. My defenses in my twenties were, prof- were were just profoundly strong. I wasn't really ready to dig in and do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he certainly paved the path for, for later work. So I began getting help in my early twenties. And then classically, I thought I had it licked after a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and did you seek help for what? I was calling it depression at that time. I was calling it clinical depression, but looking back and in journals and stuff, it's clear that it was, you know, boilerplate complex Mm -hmm. post-trauma. Again, the dissociative experiences that I had mentioned before, um, as well as just affect that seemed to come from somebody else suddenly, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, body movements that that I couldn't account for. Mm. The, the kind of the whole panoply of of serious post traumatic stress symptoms. Would, did the therapists you saw at that time did they recognize that this was trauma related? You know, this is the middle nineties, um, and I think so. I my guess, um, he's deceased, unfortunately. A, a lovely man. Um, my guess is that he he understood quite a bit about what was going on, but um, that I was only able to go so far. I mean, I mm-hmm. remember him saying something about like, um, 
yes, you want to take the bandaid off, but you might not want to take it all off at once, you know? <laughs> uh, so my, my guess is he had a lot more insight about what was going on with me than I did and was titrating it as best he could. But I thought I had completed therapy after a few years. <laughs> <laughs> right. So share with us how music came into the scene here for you. Yeah. Well, I began, um, there, you know, there was a, a, a culture of just oppressive hostility and unhappiness at home. And I'm not sure how I initially got interested in the guitar, but I did. And it was um, throughout high school, uh, an utter obsession. I mean, I was someone who practiced during the summers, eight, 10 hours a day. Wow. Um, and it's funny looking back on it. I'm, I'm not as good of a player as I should be for the amount of time I put in. I think there was a powerful, distractive, distracting component to that. Just like, a, here's the obsession that keeps me from feeling anything. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I enjoyed it and I, I initially went to music school. That was frankly disastrous, but I didn't give up on music. I just um, shifted my focus from jazz to more uh, singer songwriter type of stuff, rock music. If, and if I may, if I may, disastrous. Yeah. How? How was music school disastrous? I had my first just genuine breakdown and had to be with medically withdrawn from school. Mm. Um, yeah, my, uh, it was one of those moments of such extreme abstraction from self that I, I i barely knew who or where i was that's when that began the mm. the the strongest presentation of it began when i was mm -hmm. 17 at music school mm -hmm. uh, and so i i had to be withdrawn and you were withdrawn to where <sighs> home okay not a great place to wow. have been and um, I was in kind of a catatonic torpor, more or less, you know, on and off for six months. But as soon as I could, I, I, I got out and moved to Richmond for this band that I, I had been a part of. And for the band, talk to us about reintegrating into the in, into your music. What was that like for you? You know, it had nothing in common with um, my sort of stultifying suburban uh, upper middle class uh, background, which had been kind of Reagan Republican, uh, culturally middle of the road. I cared about art. I cared about creative life. That's and, and that wasn't a part of my family. So I think being in a rock band, it wasn't exactly punk rock, like out screaming in the streets or something, you know, um, but it it was an it was different enough that it was a domain where i felt that i could find some modicum of safety and fellow feeling with other people who cared about creative work mm -hmm. and what were you doing in that band were you playing the guitar and singing yeah, i was playing guitar and singing okay yeah. so how do things unfold you get into this band you you've just experienced or at some point previously you've just experienced this intense breakdown yeah, I uh, I had a my MO. I don't think it's unusual was after the intense breakdown and purported recovery was to deny that I'd had the experience at all. Not externally. I would admit the the facts um, of it, but I wouldn't admit the substance of it to, to you or to myself. So as far as I was concerned, I was just going along as any other 20 year old playing in a band, which at that time entailed driving around in a van with unwashed other young men playing at horrible bars until the middle of the night. It was, um, 
it was dues paying a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of heavy dues paying. Uh, it was an interesting time. That was right after Nirvana. And, and at that time, there were still record companies in a way that there no longer are that threw, really did throw sums of money at young and promising bands to make a record. And, you know, we had our brushes with that. Um, my main collaborator in the band uh, later went on to be a, a very successful musician um, mm-hmm. in his own right. Mm-hmm. So it, it was formative and, and wonderful. But after a few years, um, I was I was burned out and I just frankly wasn't doing well mentally. Uh, I needed some other path. And what was that path? I was con- I was con- I was convinced that I needed a more professional path. I kind of I you know, I grew up in an education system and um, in in a social sort of a social milieu where there were high expectations. And so I thought I was supposed to be a professional. And that's when I kind of put myself on the path towards going to graduate school to become a therapist. And bad idea. (laughs) There there should be a club. There should be be cliffhangers. Yeah, I'm sorry. Just, there should be a club for those of us who go to all the trouble of applying to and getting into competitive PhD programs only to find out that what we really need is more help. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, I could not be any more um, that person. So I, I wound up at the University of Maryland. Um, actually, it's interesting. Christine Courtois was um, in the first graduating class in the counseling psychology PhD program that I wound up in. Oh, wow. Um, I picked a really good place to completely come undone because when that happened, which was a few months into the first semester, it was the kind of thing that I couldn't fake my way out of. I, mm-hmm. I'd sort of, you know, before being in a band or going to public school, it, it wasn't that challenging. You, a smart person can kind of fake thread the needle. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a PhD program like that, and you've got research responsibilities, you're beginning to do practica, um, you know, there's coursework, man, if, if you're not on it, uh, it's going to show. And I just, I, it was, it was too much adult life for yeah. me at that time. And, I, and the collapse was dramatic public. Um, I lost the ability to move or speak in the graduate student lounge. Uh, and the little clip that you read from my bio on the website addresses this time of life. I lived in DC. Um, I managed to remain homed, but that was always a a question. Um, My therapist at that time was actually sharing office space with Dr. Courtois. And um, I was lucky to find um, her. um, And uh, you know, I was in, in several times a week therapy, sometimes with phone calls in between. I benefited greatly from the Psychiatric Institute of Washington's trauma uh, program, both the day program and the inpatient program on and off for a couple of years. Really just it was life saving. So at this point, was there a recognition that you had experienced trauma? It was. It, yeah, it, it began. It, it's um, it actually. Um, I think it was evident, it was evident. Um, and I was at that point admitting that there had been anger problems, but I was having just wild ab reactions that I didn't understand in, in, in flashes. Mm-hmm. And I was prescribed a little bit of clonopin. And the first one of those that I took, I think it kind of unwound all the obsessive binding that it had kept things close. And that's when it just all, 
I, I was living in a world of eclipsing terror. Um, and it became clear that, I mean, there, there was specific memory attached. Mm. A lot of that has still taken a long time to be able to, um, to face. I don't know that I'll ever have a, a complete autobiographical narrative of all the things that happened, but I'm 20 years into this and it's not, not like it's all processed, but it was a flood all at once. Um, Can I just say, first of all, I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing this and damn dude, your, your journey is so intense Yeah, and your ability and I realize we're we're scratching the surface here of everything, but your ability to 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 manage however you did, yeah, is is what's the word? I mean, I I can't imagine going through what you've gone through and being able to to do this. And I just want to acknowledge the fact that you're incredible to, to have done this. I mean, Thank Jesus. You. Yeah. Thanks, Guy. I mean, look, I mean, it's part of why I reached, I've been reaching out to people with platforms to discuss trauma. Um, it's kind of weird being an artist trying to get an album out. Like, that's a hard thing these days, especially when you're a 50 year old man. Like, you, there's a, there's kind of a resounding silence when, when you stick, you put it out there and suddenly it's on Spotify um, along with, you know, 80 million other songs. And then there's this other piece of me that is really eager to talk about trauma survivorship and and finding outlets that have any interest in the overlapping mm-hmm. Venn diagram there mm-hmm. is difficult. So I'm very grateful to be here um, and, and, and to tell this story. I also have to say, like, I guess it's I guess I guess it, it is a story of resilience and of survivorship. It's still not easy. Um, and the self states who are presenting themselves can often step up and, and appear quite strong and competent, but I still struggle. Uh, and I don't anticipate that ending, although it has gotten better. And the one other thing I want to say is I haven't done it alone. I've, I've um, For someone with uh, um, the kind of level of sadistic violence in his past that I have, it's a, it's somewhat of a miracle that I was able to um, have human relationships at all, including most primarily with my therapist, but then also with caring friends without whom I wouldn't be here. There's that Beatles song, I get by with a little help from my friends. And for, for me, it's like, I would rewrite it as I get, I get by with a huge and ongoing, constant uh, nurturing support from a, a small group of lovely people. At, at what point, well, there are a couple of things I want to ask you about here. I want, I'm curious about um, at what point you said, you know what, I, I want to share this with other people. No, yeah, but, I, but before, been... before we do, before we get mm-hmm. that, I also sure. want to say, ask you, when did you get to a point where you kind of felt like something or someone was quote unquote helping you work through this? Are you ready to become the best version of yourself? Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, and it is 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. 
We get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. No more worrying about finding the right provider or scheduling appointments. Cerebral brings it all to you whenever and wherever you need it. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you, the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners, 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started by going to Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code THETRAUMATHERAPIST. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L.com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code THETRAUMATHERAPIST to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Please see site for details. Going Inside is a new podcast on a mission to help you heal from trauma and connect with your authentic self. Hosted by licensed trauma therapist John Clark, this show explores trauma healing through the lens of internal family systems therapy with detours into EMDR, somatic experiencing, and much more. Tune in for enlightening guest expert interviews, immersive solo deep dives, real therapy sessions, and soothing guided meditations. Head on over to johnclarktherapy.com slash podcast or search for Going Inside with John Clark on your favorite podcast platform. Once again, head on over to johnclarktherapy.com forward slash podcast or search for Going Inside with John Clark on your favorite podcast platform. That began in in the in the in the the later months of two thousand one, beginning months of two thousand two, and that's the therapist who I refer to in my that um, little piece from my bio. Um, I wouldn't be here without without her help. I happened to have fallen apart in a place at the University of Maryland where we had a list of therapists, someone new to call this particular therapist who had experience dealing with the toughest cases. So I've had help the whole time, but as you know, accepting that help can take years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Developing the trust of that one person. I always think of it as similar to, um, you know, the story of Helen Keller learning the concept of water from Annie Sullivan with her hand under the well. Mm -hmm. You know, and and having the, the letters written on her hand until it all clicks like She's communicating to me about this. Mm-hmm. For me in therapy, that was a years long process. I, I, I was a people pleaser and would go to therapy because to be sort of be a good boy. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. It took quite a while for me to trust that the enterprise existed to help me mm-hmm. uh, and to develop that trust. So, beginning the very beginning of two thousand two. Developing that trust took a couple of years, um, and then it's been ongoing since then. Was there, was there, can you, can you name something um, particularly specifically that, that did help you or help you realize something? Yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, um, I probably wouldn't mention this to a, in a, in another podcast, but given the title of yours and who I presume your listenership, um, some of the transference stuff was sexual. I thought I was I thought I was there to be exploited, mm-hmm. and so if my therapist, there was one hallmark moment where she called me in the evening because I'd been having a really rough time, and I, I thought she was propositioning me, and I told her rather than stuffing that down. 
And that became a moment of, you know, that the fundamental concept of working through the transference. That was the moment. Like once, once I really believed that that wasn't what was happening, Mm -hmm. um, that's where I think I really began to benefit from, you know, what they call the real relationship. So that was one moment very early on where I realized not everyone was there to get something from me. Um, Also, I've benefited from inpatient stays at some of the um, sadly now defunct trauma inpatient units where at least back then it was a little bit of a bare knuckles brawl. You know, people weren't as worried about titrating stuff back then. And I really benefited from the confrontations that I experienced in some of those programs of like, no, this really happened. You, you know, you belong here kind of stuff. Interesting. So that, that confrontational, why do you think that specifically helped you? Because I was so, I was kind of so committed to um, identifying out with the population of trauma survivors, even though I was saying, you know, in substance, many of the same things as the others like, no, you're the messed up ones. I'm, I'm up here getting my PhD. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I wasn't fine. And, and there was no, there's a kind of no amount of, a therapist asking open-ended questions that would have moved me towards acceptance as quickly as peers saying, dude, you are just absolutely full of it. Right. You buddy, you are full of it. And uh-huh. I heard them. <laughs> um, I appreciate you sharing that. When Tim, did, did you get to a point where you wanted to speak about this stuff and share this stuff? Yeah, I, um, I had a, uh, a real collapse in 2013. Um, I was at Shepherd Pratt for a while, which was very, that program was helpful to me. Um, and then over the, I, I started to write music again within a few years. I would go through these periods of working on stuff and not working on stuff, quitting again. Like I'd start music and quit it and start music and quit it. And probably around 2015, I started to write in earnest again. I, I um, participated in an incredible writing workshop here for several years. It's called Life in 10 Minutes. And my dear friend, Valley Haggard ran that. And it's, mm-hmm. um, you write on a timer with a group of people uh, without any real concern about editing. And then you share what you've written with no crosstalk and no feedback. Mm-hmm. And um, I, that's where I really began to tell the story about everything that I've been through. And I've been shy to do that because, you know, a lot of times if you tell these stories, A, a lot of people, even good people don't believe you and B, they think you should get over it. And so in Valley's writing workshop um, in 2015 to fairly recently, it was just an amazing experience of disclosing the truth of my life and having other people respond with care. So was Um, that just a particular right place, right time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, well, a, fr- a friend of mine who had enjoyed the class t- thought I would too, that kind of thing. Huh. And then I realized, you know, the, the, the place for my writing has always been songs. I think I was probably by 2018, I was back to it. I'd formed um, this version of Timothy Bailey and the humans by kind of asking my dream team um, and of, of other musicians to be in the band. And over 2018, 2019, and then during the pandemic, it just became clear to me that in terms of subject matter, um, 
the ins and outs of coping with overwhelming despair uh, is what I is is what I had to offer. Mm. Um, so the work itself hovers around really difficult material. It's it ain't party music. <laughs> My view, though, is that nobody sings a sad song. No one sings the blues to make the listeners feel worse. Um, the point is that everyone feels a little bit less alone. Um, so I, I'm I'm fundamentally interested in a, a concept that I've come to call the the credible message of hope, which sort of says that to someone who's truly down, like really, really below below rock bottom expressions of hope can feel oppressive it's sort of like how do you i can't move i can't talk i don't know my own name how do you expect me to to believe this pollyanna-ish nonsense mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. that i can have a nice life and to me the credible message of hope is the one where the world says no 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 until it finally says maybe and maybe, maybe is a difficult proposition to argue against. Mm -hmm. And that was a breakthrough in my therapy. It was like, I, I was like, I'm not going to make it. Well, maybe you will. It's hard to argue against. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I view as the fundamental spirit of the music that I'm making and of the album that we've just released is, mm -hmm. look, yes, it's this bad. Maybe there's a way through. So the mm -hmm. album is, is dark. It begins in kind of a murky place. It goes quite, quite dark and ends with a, I hope, a beautiful maybe. A <laughs> beautiful maybe. I love that. I think that's going to be the uh, title for this episode. Okay, great. <laughs> I think that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I admire about you is how you're you you keep you seem to keep moving you're moving along you're doing your music you're putting your soul into your music is there any concern is there any thought like okay i am 50 i'm making music how can i be making music about this real dark shit mhm mm Maybe I should. Maybe I just should, should sing about happy stuff, and and that might help me get noticed more so. I um one of the co-producers of the album, and really the person who was able to get a lot of the the necessary people in place, my friend Bob. Um, it's always been a part of our friendship for close to thirty years, talking about being a creative person and the you know the. The struggles you you kind of get a gallows humor about the inevitable like disappointments you have as a creative person mm -hmm. but i found myself recently saying bob do you ever wish that you had a different passion like maybe i don't know dual ledger accounting <laughs> and he said no he said no come on get get real man so no i i uh Boy, for me to sing happy songs, like I, I actually have, the, this is a, maybe a, a bigger topic, but I, I have a really strong view that a lot of the times what passes for art in trauma survivorship is actually propaganda and um, it's toxic positivity a lot of the time. And I think we, <laughs> I think ironically what survivors need out of art um, are safe spots, safe places to experience arts inoculation effect 
where you deal with the most difficult material in art. It's, a, it's one of the mm. beautiful things that art allows us to do is in titrated doses, encounter the worst parts of life. And um, for me, you know, that's The Road by Cormac McCarthy or um, The Bluest Eye uh, by Toni Morrison has been really important to me. Um, and I think that sometimes we can think that art is supposed to be where you go and you make a, a nice picture of a flower or something to, to quote, feel better. Mm -hmm. When in fact, what you might need is a place to express your rage and your contempt. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, uh sometimes I, I, I worry that, um, culturally, and then specifically, even within trauma survivorship, we can try to put too nice a face on our creative work. And when we do that, we deny ourselves an important place mm. to work through some of the most difficult issues. Wow. I feel very strongly about it. Um, look, I would love to have you back at a later yeah. time. Uh, I think there's a lot more to talk about. Uh, again, congratulations on the album. What's, what's the title of the album called? The album is self-titled. It is called Timothy Bailey and the Humans. Okay. Um, you can find it at Bandcamp, but it's also on Apple Music and Spotify and all those places. Okay. And we'll also have a link uh, uh, on the show notes to your website. And obviously people can get it through there. Yeah. Okay. What is the best way for people to contact you, Tim? Mm -hmm. Th thanks for asking. Um, uh, the email is hello at timothybaileyandthehumans.com. Um, Bailey has an E, so B-A-I-L-E-Y. Humans.com. Awesome. Look, uh, you are incredibly inspiring, and I sincerely mean that. I mean, uh, and I just love the way uh, you're... You 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 strike me like this intense move. You're moving, right? I'm you trying. Keep, I'm you keep trying. going. I'm trying. There's something yeah. very powerful and beautiful about that. Thanks, man. I Thanks. appreciate I, you coming on here. Hey, I appreciate your 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 kind attention. I really I really do. It's All right. Good to, it's good to be heard. I appreciate it. We'll be in touch. Love to have you back. Thanks, guy. Take All care. Right. so much for listening to this podcast and I want to let you know that I am very excited about my new podcast, The Right Now Project. The Right Now Project is about healing. It's about stepping into our own courage and authenticity and getting started or continuing along our healing process. We're all going through something, whatever it is, in this crazy life we're living. And The Right Now Project is about honoring that, celebrating that, and sharing our stories via the associated membership site. Check us out at therightnowproject.com, therightnowproject.com. <laughs>